0: recovery elevator episode 121
1: it's a poison it's a time bomb it's going to go off sooner or later in your life if it doesn't go off in your own life unfortunately it's going to go off in somebody else's
0: welcome to the recovery elevator podcast my name is paul thank you so much for joining us According to the new revamped Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 990, wait for it, nine days. Tomorrow's a big one, 1,000 days. On today's podcast, we've got Dan. He's been sober for 27 years, lives in New Hampshire, and he talks about how recovery is all about restoration. It's a great interview, so I encourage you to stick around and listen to all of it exciting news recovery elevator we just launched cafe re blue which is the second recovery elevator cafe re accountability group we are going to cap this group at 200 members currently there are about 34 members in it right now a great spot to get accountable the dialogue and conversation is really taking off go to recoveryelevator.com use the promo code re1month or use the code elevator for your first month free Okay, let's get started. The topic for today is getting sober is confusing. The whole recovery thing is confusing. In 2014, there were 141 med schools and only 14 had classes on addiction. Wait, I take that back. Only 14 had one class on addiction. Not only is recovery confusing for those who embark on this journey, medical professionals, they don't really know what the hell is going on either. One class on addiction? Are you kidding me? That's not nearly enough. I was going to tell you the point of why I'm doing this podcast at the end of my bullet list that I wrote down last week, but I'm gonna tell you right now. Recovery is confusing. But the point of this topic is to tell you that there's no specific path. If you're not going to AA, that's not a problem. You can still get sober. Don't have a sponsor? That's okay as well. There's so many ways and different pathways to take into this journey into sobriety. But yeah, recovery is freaking confusing. And never have I claimed that I have all the answers, and I don't, but I'm enjoying going down this journey to sobriety and learning more and more about it. Oftentimes, I wish I was doing a DIY blog where I was building wood projects. That way, the steps would be super simple. Step one, buy wood. Step two, buy nails. Step three, get your hammer, nail all the stuff together, and you've got a gorgeous dining room table. In recovery, man, the steps are all over the place. I'm not talking like the 12 steps here. I'm talking just the steps in general of how to navigate sobriety. So here's some things that I wrote down. A lot of these things I thought about in early sobriety when I was drinking, and it simply just made my mind spin. I remember hearing NAA take what you want and leave the rest. Well, that's great, but if you don't like the first step, it seems like you're totally f-ed. Well, it's not that drastic, but you get the point. I've heard people say you need a miracle to get sober, but in the 12 steps, It says the miracle happens after the 12th step. Which one is it? Oh, the cognitive dissonance in getting sober. There were so many times when I was trying to get sober, only three days ago, I would be laid up in bed thinking I had the plague and I was dying. Yet, 72 hours later, I feel like a million bucks and I want to drink again. But only three days ago, I had promised myself that I was never going to touch the alcohol again for the rest of my life. This cognitive dissonance, this difference in our thinking internally is so confusing and so exhausting. There's the ism, an alcohol ism. It stands for the incredible short memory. It felt like I had, oh, no shortage of hundreds of bottoms, but then the incredible short memory would kick in and I couldn't remember any of them, even if the bottom was just a couple days ago. In reality, there are so many options to getting sober, so many different pathways, so many different programs, so many different treatment options. But it feels like when we're first getting sober, it's basically AA or you crash and burn. Once you're in AA, do I need a sponsor? How do I get a sponsor? There has to be some sort of pamphlet on this. Actually, in AA, there usually are pamphlets of how to get a sponsor and things like that. But you got to get to AA first to find the rack of pamphlets, which usually is hidden behind the corner behind a gumball machine or a vending rack. Oh, yeah. And if you don't have a higher power or believe in God, you're fucked. F- f- I'm just kidding on that one. You're not screwed at all. But all 50 states recognize AA as a religious program and institution. What does that mean? To me, this whole business of getting sober is confusing because alcohol is legal. Yes, legal, L-E-G-A-L, not illegal, I-L-E-G-A-L. I know I left out an L. That was a quiz, and you passed it. Yeah, meth, crack, heroin, cocaine, all illegal. I shouldn't do it. I remember in high school in college and in elementary school and middle school, pretty much every school that I attended, that I shouldn't do that stuff because it's illegal. But alcohol, what's going on with alcohol? Yeah, motivational speakers, you kind of left that one out. Thank you. This recovery business is confusing because those damn marketers, damn, they are good. The average person sees over 50 alcohol references each day, and they usually aren't of people throwing up on the gap spring collection. Recovery is confusing because of games like baseball. How the hell do I enjoy a game like baseball without beer? In my opinion, it, it, it's, just, it's just so hard to do, which is why I don't watch baseball anymore, and, and ever really. I remember times in early sobriety where I would log consecutive days. Look at me. I just got 30 days of sobriety. I am cured. And then I would drink and find out I'm actually the furthest thing from cured as possible. Going down that similar vein, when I would get a consecutive amount of time together, I would say the three most dangerous words that an alcoholic can say is, I got this. Uh Uh-oh, watch out, a relapse is just around the corner. I still do my best not to say the words, I got this. Hey, recovery elevator, look at me, I got this. Cause I don't, I don't got this. What I do got is today. My plan is to not drink today. That's all I'm worried about. I don't got anything. Well, I got a lovely standard poodle named Ben and a huge love for the band Third Eye Blind, but that's about it. Recovery is confusing because of terminal uniqueness. I mentioned on this podcast after my very first AA meeting that I walked out, jumped up, clicked my heels, and I drank two days later. Because I was focusing on the differences and not the similarities. Our brains want us to focus on the differences. We want to find ways that we are different and say stuff like, you know what? This program's not going to work for me because I drive a Camry. That guy drives a Mazda. These are some of the things that I heard in early sobriety. And still, when I hear them, I just say to myself, what the fudge? You know you're an alcoholic when you quit drinking and things don't improve. I remember my sponsor told me that and I was just like, uh, mind blown. Can you please elaborate, sir? Next up, drinking is but a symptom. WTF can you please explain that one emotional sobriety what the shit is that I've actually done a couple podcast episodes on emotional sobriety so go back through the logs and you can learn more about that but again extremely confusing stuff higher power yes it's more than a Huey Lewis in the news song it's something that you kind of need in recovery or do you need it in recovery oh my god so confused Studies show that red wine can be good for you. Oh, wait a second. I just read an article on CNN.com that red wine has been linked to many forms of cancer. Can someone please clarify? No, I'm serious. Somebody please clarify. The treatment for recovery takes so many different pathways. There are pills like naltrexone and abuse and other medications. Some people use medications. Some people don't. This is a three part disease spiritual, mental, and physical, and the medications really only address the physical component. Man, that makes my mind spin just saying that. Is alcoholism a disease? You've got medical professionals on both sides of the fence, even though in 1956 the American Medical Association classified alcoholism addiction as a disease. Medical professionals, can you guys just like, you know, take a retreat, lock yourself in a room for a weekend, and, and just get on the same page, please? And perhaps this is the most confusing component of it this disease tells you that you don't have a disease i can't think of any other disease unless it's something fabricated in a sci-fi movie that could be that lethal that deadly that cunning and baffling again this topic was not to confuse you more this topic was to empower you and let you know that there are so many different pathways in recovery and look there are times that I'm confused as well I was extremely confused in early sobriety early recovery of how to navigate this path but that is okay because the good news is you don't have to have the answers there's so many people out there that have done this path before and you can simply ask them yeah you're going to get a bunch of different answers and that's okay but you don't have to know the answers okay and now let's hear from our interviewee Dan Dan how are you Good. How are you doing today, Paul? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for asking, Dan. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober?
1: I've been sober since June 21st, 1990. So uh, coming up on 27 years.
0: Nice. 1990. Yeah. I was eight years old. That is fantastic. <laughs> 27 years. Wow. That is so cool.
1: Yeah. Thanks. It's been an amazing journey. Of course, it's uh, you know all the things that you. You know, you kind of, when I got sober, of course, I thought, oh, I, you know, for a while I would be, just be bulletproof. Nothing would ever hurt me again. And uh, of course, as you find out, the longer you stay sober, that's not true. Life still happens. So it's uh, been a roller coaster ride.
0: <laughs> Life does still happen, but our coping skills have slightly been modified and improved in sobriety, which I found. <laughs> and before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, Dan, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living. You have a family, and what do you like to do for fun?
1: I live in uh, beautiful Thornton, New Hampshire, up in the woods of the White Mountains, and uh, grew up in Boston, got sober around the Boston area. Most of my career, I've been a professional skier, uh, known for skiing the most remote regions of the world, uh, making ski films in places like Russia, the Arctic, uh, Turkey, Romania, Yugoslavia, of course, all across Europe and the U.S., and I'm also a film producer myself. I produce action sports films, specializing in winter and, and, and sailing events. And for fun, I, uh, you know, I love to be in the outdoors. I still love to ski. I still love to ride my bike, swim, uh, hang out with friends. Uh, I'm not married. I'm divorced. was married 10 years. I've been divorced now close to 17 years. I've got a bunch. I coach a lot of kids in soccer and skiing and have a lot of, a lot of kids and a lot of families in my life. And uh, I come from a big family. I come from a family of seven.
0: Wow. And in your opinion, what is the most remote part of the world? Where's the most remote part of the world that you've skied in?
1: (laughs) Well, I've been uh, north of the Arctic Circle by 350 miles twice, spent 18 days up in the Arctic with the Eskimos, and that's pretty remote, you know, where we were dropped off by a plane, picked up by a plane, living in igloos, fishing and hunting and skiing, but also skied with the Kurds on the border of Turkey and Iraq during the first Persian Gulf War. That was pretty remote at the time and just done a lot of crazy things like that
0: dan i'd love to story top you but i can't i've been skiing in idaho twice that is all i got
1: <laughs> hey, it's all good
0: <laughs> yeah now let's uh let's jump into your background when did you first notice that you perhaps had the problem with drinking
1: well i was always was a very good partier <laughs> with uh had uh Learned how to party, so to speak, at a very young age. And I had uh, grown up in a big family. I'm number five of seven. So I had a couple older brothers that introduced me to things that probably weren't too age appropriate at young ages. Sure. Uh, and by the time I was uh, in high school, I was pretty much a daily pot smoker and a weekend drunk. And I had heard uh, somewhere along the line that it's not how much you drink, but it's what alcohol does to you when you drink and i heard that pretty early in life and i always knew that i was drinking or using for for effect that was never never in doubt for me i was always trying to change the way i felt and the way i was would what i would bring to the situation by using drugs and alcohol so i just never considered it a problem
0: yeah can you expand a little bit more on that that resonated with me a lot it's it's not you know it's not what you drink it's how you drink
1: yeah i think you know for me i was sort of the catalyst for a lot of other people's drinking I, I liked the party I liked the drink I, I could People considered me A good drunk driver So my <laughs> high school friends Would always drive Drive in my car mm-hmm. And I was always up For a good time Always up for an adventure So I would sort of Want to be around Other people While I was drinking And using And you know The the whole change You know The whole phenomenon Of, of the obsession of, of you know Planning to drink You know Particularly in high school When you're underage. You know Around Tuesday, Wednesday, planning the weekend, how you were going to get it, who was going to organize it, and then sort of the the anxiety I felt before we actually got it, and the relief I felt once I started to consume it, was uh, very always very obvious to me that I was going through these stages and, and that there was a prize at the end. There would be there would be fun, uh, there'd be wildness, and companionship once I started to drink and use.
0: Do you recall what it was like when you drank for the very first time?
1: Well, I drank really young. You know, I probably started to drink probably around 11, 12. And I remember when I stole my first six pack of slits from my <laughs> parents and uh, drove it away in my 10 speed bike to the cemetery to catch up with some friends. Yeah. And uh, drink out there. And uh, yeah, I remember not really loving it, you know. And then I, you know, drinking with my older brothers who were six and eight years older, you know, I, once I would start getting sick, they, you know, they would say, you know, their friends would kind of say to me, you might want to slow down here and there. But slowing down never really occurred to me. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't have sort of like an aha moment that I sometimes hear about in the halls. But for me, uh, drinking was just a part of my life. It was because I was the, the younger brother. I was always hanging out with all the people that drank and used. And it just seemed like that's what everybody did.
0: So if you started drinking at 12 years old and you got sober at 24, you had about 12 years of drinking data underneath you. And did you find that it progressed as you continued to drink?
1: Oh yeah, for sure it progressed. I, I was introduced to cocaine in the eighth grade and that was a that was rocket fuel for me. And, and then pot of course, and it did progress, you know, but also my tolerance progressed. You know, I could take more, I could handle more, you know, sort of my badge of courage was, you know, I've got this. So by the time I was 16, I, my oldest brother taught me to drive at 13. Hmm. So I, we could, so he could drink, I could get us home. <laughs> okay, that makes uh, sense. <laughs> and we just didn't drive around the block. We would drive, you know, to ski areas up north country and for hours. So I had been highway and city driving for three years prior to my license. And so, but it, and I don't ever recall anybody not telling me to drink and drive. For me, drink. The drinking and driving was sort of like how far were we going, how much could we consume, was hand in hand. So drinking and driving was just something that I did. And like, you know, I joke about people thought I was good at it. So, you know, that progression of tolerance that I used to think that the Southeast Expressway in downtown Boston was a video game, that everybody on it was drunk after 10 p.m. Yeah, that's just how it was.
0: Yeah, I think that actually did turn into a video game called Grand Theft Auto later <laughs> later down the road yeah exactly. man I was I was introduced to algorithms in the eighth grade not cocaine right. but I yeah. I definitely started drinking in the eighth grade and I, I asked that question what it was like the first time you drank because I, I think you know I know we, we digest alcohol differently our our digestive systems we break it down differently than normal drinkers and I remember my first drink it was more of a euphoric feeling and I was chasing that ever since um, and did you find the same thing, that you were just continuously chasing those feelings?
1: Yeah, I, I think I probably subconsciously was chasing those feelings. I think more consciously I was chasing the party, you know. I was chasing the excitement and the rush of it. So, you know, and for me sort of, you know, as I get into high school and, you know, just the, the use of the booze, it was so common. You know, it just, again, it was, you know, in the 70s, uh, in the early 80s. Uh, I just didn't have the same stigma that it has today for kids. You know, it was, it was really accepted that kids would party. We had so many, so many wild bashes at my house. You know, my parents went to the movies with throw a party, you know, um, wow. and, you know, just it was, you know, if you get pulled over by the cops, they asked you to pour it out, but they never gave you a sobriety test or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So it was just, a, I think, you know, for me, it wasn't so much the, I was chasing the external. I know that. And I was definitely benefiting from the internal. But for me, it was really externally driven to, to be a joiner, to be a leader, to, you know, to coordinate the party, the booze, the car, the whole bit.
0: Mm-hmm. And let's fast forward a little bit until, you know, age 24, 24, Did you have a rock bottom moment that, you know, that was the impetus to get you into sobriety? What happened?
1: One of my brothers and I owned a business called Alternative Recreation Unlimited. <laughs> and we threw booze cruises on the harbor in Boston. Oh, and we wow. would promote band <laughs> we would promote bands on our booze cruises. And we had it we had a I have a younger brother and he lived he was going to the University of Vermont. So we had expanded our booze cruise business to Lake Champlain. And we were having a booze cruise on Lake Champlain. And I just for some reason it really occurred to me that it didn't take me long to get messed up that that, you know, I had a had done a bunch of cocaine. I had a a bag of mushrooms in my socks and I had done a bunch of, you know, bunch of shots and was drinking by the time we even get on the boat.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Once we started doing the hallucinogenics, the booze cruise was scheduled, I think, for three hours. But after 45 minutes, they turned us around and kicked us off. And it was just one of those moments where I was really hyper aware of how messed up I was and how messed up everybody around me was. Mm hmm. And, you know, that night I sort of had a heart-to-heart with one of my brothers, you know, we don't have to be like this, we don't have to live like this, that sort of thing. I don't think they, they remember it, <laughs> but I did. And the next day I decided I would stop drinking. And for me, the definition of not drinking was just not telling you I drank.
2: Uh,
1: <laughs> I went from already, you know, life of the party, already karate, life of the party, to drinking alone, to going to bars alone, to telling you I didn't drink, but drinking. And then, you know, that cycle of shame, that cycle of hiding sort of took place. And I, I had a, a, a girlfriend at the time who was really encouraging me not to drink and, and, I, and I was hiding it. So, you know, I just didn't know how not to drink. I'd been drinking so long, I didn't know how not to drink. And I traveled for a living. My ski career had started to take off. So I was, you know, on the pro mogul tour at the time and I was making more Miller ski films and traveling around the world. And. And so I had a high school friend that used to pick up my uh, mail and coordinate, you know, bills and things like that for me while I was on the road. And her mom was in AA. And when I would go to my friend's Carolyn's house to pick up my mail, her mom, Connie, would look me in the eye and say, hey, you're not comfortable in your own skin, kid. And eventually I convinced Carolyn to drop off the mail on the, on the street so I didn't have to go to see her mom.
0: <laughs> Damn it, Connie. <laughs>
1: But there came a day where, you know, I I was on a job in South America. We were making a ski movie, and I got kicked out of the only hotel at 10,000 feet for being a drunk
2: hmm. and a
1: jerk, and and it wasn't a very good scene. And so when I got back to the States, I asked Connie to take me to a meeting. It was a meeting in my hometown, and that meeting was my high school friends, my high school teachers, my parents' friends, my wow. insurance agent, my Little League baseball coach. Hmm. And I remember my Little League baseball coach came up to me and said, you know, hey, if you want what we got, you got to do what we do. And I looked at him and said, I didn't like you when I was 13. (laughs) I don't don't know what you're talking
0: about. That's
1: hilarious. But but that sort of became the beginning of what would be a two-year cycle in and out of AA for me. But the one thing I remember about going to that first meeting was I heard stinking thinking. And I knew that I had that, that. I knew I could totally relate to the fact that my thinking was off track. You know, I would, I was really, I was young and, you know, I basically lived in my van at the time I was, you know, lived on the road. I had a van in the West coast van in the East coast and I lived in and out of my vans and I would follow people home from meetings because I didn't believe they were drunks. And I would watch them drive nice cars, go to nice homes. And I would go, how can they be drunks? You know, but I didn't understand they were sober. Gotcha was so enthralled with the fact that I was a drunk and these people were drunks, but I hadn't really clued into the process of sobriety yet.
0: And so you were in and out of the room so, for, for two years. What yeah, what finally stuck?
1: Well, I was involved with a really tragic mountain accident in Russia in 1990 that killed 33 people, and I was lost in the storm for two and a half days. Wow. And it's a very tragic story, long story, but a, a Russian saved my life in this big storm and the next day, him and then I rescued 14 people. and Then I ended up in a hospital in Europe. And by the time I got back to the States, you know, there was a lot of uh, anger and there was a lot of guilt and there was a lot of, you know, bad feelings about people who had died on the trip. And there was a lot of blame for people who ran the trip. We were sort of this, I was one of the celebrities on the trip. So, you know, there was a lot of fallout from the trip. And I had, once I got back to Boston, I started picking up and using again and this time it was really different for me. It was like I was angry and I was confused and I was, I was still very traumatized from the storm. And back in those days, they used to do roadblocks on the roads. They would stop every car for sobriety checks. And I had done a bunch of cocaine and I was in my van that I lived in and I was stuck in a roadblock, one of the sobriety checks. And the guy looked in my van and he just looked at me and he looked at the van. He goes, is it moving weekend? <laughs> and I went, yeah. It is. I'm, I'm moving all my possessions. And he goes, okay, get out of here. And I was just couldn't believe that I got through. And uh, the next day, I called my friend's mom, Connie.
0: Oh, Connie again. And,
1: uh, yeah, and Connie got me into an outpatient program. And and then I got a counselor. And through that outpatient program, you know, I started to get a hold of it. You know, they sent me to meetings. They said go to Tuesday night, look for a guy named Joe. Go to Friday night, look for a guy named Billy. And you know, go down the line and. You know, being a pro athlete, when they told me they needed, I needed a sponsor, I was like, oh, I have tons of sponsors. I'm sponsored by North Face <laughs> Fisher Ski. Like, what do you mean I need a sponsor? Yeah, the
0: jacket I'm and, wearing. Uh, See that logo? Boom.
1: Exactly. I, I'm all logoed up. And so one night I walked up. They told me to go get a sponsor at this meeting. So I walked up the church stairs, and at the top there was a guy, and he shook my hand. And I, I said, oh, you must be my sponsor. And he said, no, I'm the greeter. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> he goes but I'll be your sponsor and so you know I I kind of connected with Ron a little bit and I never really understood what he was saying but he did take me around and you know slowly it started to happen for me eventually I I was at a meeting and uh this guy came up to me in a meeting and goes hey I know you. you used to smoke pot in the eighth grade in my cellar with my son and listen to Pink Floyd the dark side of the moon great album <laughs> <laughs> and Billy was the first guy to really make me laugh in AA. He was my best friend, eighth grade best friend's father, and he had been sober a long time. And he eventually became my sponsor and took me to Matt Talbot retreats and kind of, you know, really kind of anchored me and told me it was all right. He was the first guy to really tell me it was all right and that, that I would be all right, mm-hmm. that there was hope and started to take me through the steps. And, you know, the process began. And then that, that fall, when I, when I hit the road again, I started going to meetings all over the country. I got I didn't get sober in a home group or anything. I got sober in Utah and Wyoming and Idaho and California and every time I went to a meeting I was a newcomer. I didn't know anybody and without the internet back then you used to have to look through the directories to find these meetings and it was intimidating. It wasn't easy to find meetings in those days. There's I always say there's no neon lights outside of AA meetings. Say AA meeting here tonight. You know, there's mm-hmm. no street numbers on churches. There's yeah. I haven't seen it. Yeah. So, you know, you I would go in and feel like an outsider. and But AA has a way of making you feel okay. And I was in a meeting one time in Ogden, Utah, and a guy came up to me. It was a dark cellar where the meeting was. And he said, hey, kid, there's no bad AA meetings, only bad attitudes. And uh, I hadn't even shared at that meeting. And I was like, wow, am I radiating that much attitude? Sure. You know? And then at another time at a meeting in Denver, a guy said to me, You know, when I was in that phase of like, oh, I'm not sure I'm an alcoholic or not. And he said, hey, kid, in AA, if you're an alcoholic, we can help you. And if you're not an alcoholic, we can make sure you never become one. Hmm. And he really took it away from me. You know, he kind of just said, why not? Why not get sober? You know, what do you got to lose? You know, so that was sort of my experience, you know, in AA was getting sober all over the country and these different meetings and all over the world. You know, I've been to meetings all over the world. I started going to meetings in Europe that year. And I've been to meetings, you know, in South America, New Zealand, Austria, Australia, all across Europe. And, you know, just to, I'm always amazed at the community of the meetings. You know, I'm always amazed that they call Dr. Bill and Dr. Bob and Bill W's social architects, you know, that these guys were. And if you think about the society that they built, the consistency of the society, the, the love of the society, the fact that, you know, it has no leaders, it's self-funding, has no opinions, the group conscious, you know, I've seen it all work. I've I've seen it countless times. I've seen the count, group conscious take over and remove a chairperson. I've seen the group conscious change direction of, a, of an entire meeting. Hmm. And to see it governed in that way is always mind boggling and humbling to me. Uh, you know, being an Irish kid from Boston, I have an opinion about everything, you know, <laughs> And the one thing about my opinion is that it's different than yours. That's all it is. You sure. know, I, my favorite Irish saying is, is a private fighter? Can anybody be involved? And, you know, <laughs> I, uh, and, uh, yeah. And I, you know, I, a lot of days I, I wake up swinging. That's just part of my nature. I'm a fighter. I'm a, I'm a gamer. I want to be in, in the competition. And so in a lot of ways, you know, I was, I was tampering, tempering that through booze and alcohol and drugs and, and, you know, when, when you strip that all away and you're left with yourself and those raw emotions, you know, eventually you got to start to deal with them. And My journey in sobriety has been learning to live with myself, learning to accept myself, learning to have compassion for myself. Uh, you know, and then the AA community has been there for me through, you know, divorce. It's been there for me uh, through bankruptcy. It's been there for me to, you know, to accept me, to welcome me in. Good, bad, or mad, sad, or indifferent. They they take me, and they dust me off, and they move me on. And I I just i love it.
0: Dan, let's fast forward a bit. You've been sober for 27 years. Walk me through a day in the life of Dan. How how are you still doing it, and what programs, what rules do you still have in place?
1: You know, I have a great community of sober people in my life, you know, all over the world. And uh, I tap into that, and I stay in touch with that. I grew up in a in a Catholic family and, and I love the Catholic faith and I, I love the ritual and the faith and, and the journey of you know, with Christ through the Catholic institution. And over the last twenty seven years that's only gotten stronger and, and more faithful. So I, I do bible studies, I, I lead group youth groups and group youth bible studies. My ministry is coaching. I coach a lot of kids in soccer and skiing and I've really searched out what it's like to be a sober man in my community, to be active in my community as a sober single man, to be available to youth groups and church groups and parents to counsel kids on just day-to-day life and struggles, teenagers, teenage struggles. I still go to AA meetings, you know, but not, not a lot. I, I go to probably two to four a month and I have my favorite meetings that I'd love to go to. Um, I don't, I'm not currently sponsoring anybody particular, but I have quite a few people that I, that I keep in touch with, you know, Mm. on sobriety issues. And I've got a lot of good friends that, you know, consult to me on my, my wacky uh, magic magnifying mind. So, (laughs) you know, I do a lot of spiritual readings and i listen to pretty much Christian radio. That's, that's all that I'll allow into my mind. I, the gospel of, Classic rock, I find very destructive, and very just can't listen to it anymore. Country music's too depressing, and uh, huh. I just go for the pos- positive, positive messages wherever and whenever I can find them.
0: Sure, and and what do you value most in recovery, Dan? Well,
1: I value my relationship with with God. I value my relationship with my my family. You know, I I think that recovery is about restoration. You know, that's the great promise of of being sober and, and the, the 12 steps that will be restored, will be restored to our se- full fullest self. That's mm-hmm. the great promise of Christ as well that will be restored. And I value the, the restoration of the relationships with my six siblings, my mom and dad, my aging parents. I value the the relationships I have with the children in my life who you know consider me their, their uncle, their dad, their mentor. And it just goes from there.
0: And Dan, I've got a question. There's a lot of people, as you know, that have trepidation towards the higher power, towards the God thing. In fact, you know, I've personally met a lot of people that don't go to AA, and they won't go to their first AA meeting because of this. What do you have to say to those out there who you know, have this block, this wall in place that you know they, they, they can't buy into AA because they don't believe in God?
1: Well, I think that AA casts a really wide net. You know, you don't have to believe in anything to come to AA. We don't ask you to believe in anything to come to AA. What we ask you to do is stay away from the drink food for, for 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the barn door in AA is wide open, you know, from Yale to jail, come on in.
2: Hmm.
1: And because that barn door is so wide open, the further you choose to walk into that barn, eventually you're going to find a great light. That great light's going to shine through, through friends. It's going to shine through a stranger. It's going to shine through a story from the podium. It's going to shine through the literature and you're going to find peace you're going to find contentment. You're going to find some consistency to your emotions. And somewhere in there, if you choose to look further, you'll find, uh, you know, a definition of, of, of a God, you know, uh, of a loving uh, creature. And if you choose to go further and look at the history of AA and the roots of AA and the foundations of AA, you'll find a Christian program that's uh, based in uh, compassion, that's based, based in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's based in uh, restoration, and there's just no denying it. You know that there, it's there. Um, you know, I'm pretty, you know, open-minded. Uh, people, people believe a lot of different things in AA, but but eventually, you know, you know, the more you read and the more you discover, you know, there's there's no coincidences in life. You know, there's there's uh, it's springtime. It's renewal time. The buds are out on the trees. You know, the birds have come back. Uh, the snow's gone in most places. You know, there, there's a great creator out there somewhere. You don't have to call him what I call him, but it's worth discovering. That's for sure.
0: Dan, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Ready. <laughs> All right. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking, Dan?
1: Uh, probably my worst memory from drinking was uh, totaling my mother's car on Mother's Day, and having my mom tell me that I've lost everything she ever tried to instill in me.
0: Mm, that's a tough one. And next question, Dan. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward?
1: My plan in sobriety moving forward is to live a full life. To you know, live a life of of unencumbered. Uh, you know, to not be tied down to negativity, to not be tied down to shame, guilt, and remorse, and to live in the promise of a, of a new bright tomorrow.
0: And I'm excited to hear your answer with this one. You've been around the block with 27 years of sobriety. What's your favorite resource in recovery?
1: Uh, people, you know, you know, it's, it's a program of people. You know, they say meeting makers make it, and uh, in the meetings are the people. And in, in those people, there's wisdom, there's friendship, there's acceptance, there's encouragement, there's, there's cons- consoling. And, and those people, you know, they're available. Uh, I love to see AA people in, in community. I love to see them in the schools. I love to see them in, in, in the churches, in, in the youth programs, Dude, being a crosswalk monitor. You know, I love mm-hmm. seeing that because they're out there actively living a sober life. It's so empowering. I just get inspired by it.
0: And we've heard no shortage of great quotes and great advice already, but what parting piece of guidance could you give to listeners who are in early sobriety, you know, like myself, or are people thinking about quitting drinking?
1: I always say when it comes to drinking, you know, uh, you you know, it's it's a poison. It's a time bomb. It's going to go off sooner or later in your life. If it doesn't go off in your own life, unfortunately, it's going to go off in somebody else's. Mm -hmm. Uh, and how much are you willing to gamble with that. There used to be a guy at the beginner's meeting I went to in Mattapan, Massachusetts, that would bang the table and yell, you know, what is it about this much booze? And it would make like a, you know, a shot glass sign that you're willing to risk your whole damn life for. And for me, I I was risking my life with cocaine. I was risking my life with hallucinogenics. I was risking my life behind the wheel and booze. And it was too much at stake. I I couldn't do it anymore. You know, why put yourself and others at risk? You know, there's no magic in the booze. There's only drama and and chaos. And if you got an inkling that that sobriety is, is a place for you, you know, just come happy, glad, mad, or sad. Come to AA, raise your hand, tell us you're new, and watch the miracle happen.
0: That's powerful. And before we depart, Dan, give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic if line. (laughs)
1: Well, you know, you might, you might be an alcoholic is, uh, it's not every time you drink, you get in trouble, but every time you're in trouble, you're drinking, whether it's, (laughs) it's, uh, the law, your family, your loved ones. Uh, if you're lying, cheating, stealing, hiding, you know, maybe it's time to take a look at it.
0: Dan, great stuff. Thank you so much for helping me stay sober today. Much appreciated.
1: Uh, thank you all. Appreciate it, Paul. Thank you for what you do.
0: Thank you, Dan. I have got a clever list of one-liners of how to decline a drink. Okay, some of these are bad and not very clever, but you get the point. Let's move forward. Hey, Paul, would you like a drink? You know what? I'm allergic, and I usually break out in handcuffs. Hey, Paul, want a drink? Yeah, I'm allergic, and I usually break out windows, walls, and major support beams in houses. Hey, Pablo, want a cerveza? No, thanks. I've already hit my quota for this century. Hey, Paul, want a drink? Well, that depends. How much do you have in this house? Hey Paul, want a Michelob Ultra? You know what, I'd say... I'd say Seabiscuit. Seabiscuit? Oh, oh, my bad. I thought you asked me what was my favorite movie. Nah, I'm probably good. Thank you. Hey Paul, want a drink? No thanks, Tom. It's been four days since the police have been here, and I think we should build on that number. Hey Paul, want a drink? Drink a What Don't I Know? Wait, what? You know what, I said that backwards, so I'm probably good on just not having a drink. Hey Paul, want a drink? Well, Craig, is your homeowner insurance paid up? Hey, Paul, want a drink? Hell yes, I do. I love throwing up in pools. Hey, Paul, want a drink? Mm, nah, I'm more of a Drano drinker. That one's indicating that alcohol's poison. Yeah, okay. Like I said, they can't all be home run hitters. Hey, Paul, want a drink? Uh, no thanks. Last time I drank, I got a starring role in the show Cops, and I didn't get paid for it. Hey, Paul, would you like a drink? No thanks. I've stopped outsourcing my happiness. Hey Paul, want a drink? No thanks. My doctor told me a drink a day was good for me and I'm caught up until the year 5054. Hey Paul, I got a drink for you. Mm, I'm good, Steven. Thank you, though. Hey Paul, I got a drink for you. Ah, No thanks. I can't due to recent city ordinance changes. Hey Paul, want to grab some drinks at happy hour? Ah, No thanks. I've held the trophy for quite some time now and I think I'll give someone else a shot at the title. Hey Paul, want a drink? No thanks. I've got about seven brain cells left and I want to keep them. Sure, those are some clever ways to decline a drink, but the very best way to decline a drink is say, "Mm, no, thank you. You sure about that? Yeah, I don't drink. That usually ends all conversation right there. Recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.